It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. When Carrie Rawson looks back on her early life, she sees a typical Midwestern American household. She remembers growing up with her family, a carefree childhood filled with sleepovers, bike rides, and fishing trips with her dad. Dennis Rader, Carrie's father, was a model citizen of Wichita, Kansas. The Air Force veteran worked as a Park City compliance officer, served as a Boy Scout leader, and even became president of the Congregation at Christ Lutheran Church, which the family regularly attended. Carrie had a very close relationship with her dad, who is responsible for many of these fond memories. But at 26 years old, the image of her father was shattered. In 2005, the FBI knocked on her door with information that would change her life completely. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. Bind, Torture, Kill, BTK. That was the name serial killer Dennis Rader gave himself as he toyed with authorities for 30 years. Dennis Rader was a murderer before he was even a father. In 1974, he killed four members of the Otero family just four years before Carrie's birth. Rader, or BTK, was motivated by cold-blooded sexual fantasies. He found pleasure in tormenting his victims. BTK terrified the citizens of Kansas for over three decades with a horrific string of murders, making him one of the most notorious serial killers of all time. BTK ultimately claimed the lives of 10 innocent victims, two of whom were children. BTK loved the attention he received for his crimes, a narcissism which ultimately led to his downfall. After a dormant period of over 10 years, BTK's crimes were deemed cold. However, in 2004, he began to write to the media once again, taunting them with information and materials about his victims. It wasn't until he sent a floppy disk to a local television station that the connection was finally made, leading to his arrest in 2005. But how do you separate the memories of a loving father with the image of a psychopathic killer? For Carrie Rawson, she's been processing the trauma of that revelation for years. In her books, Breaking Free and A Serial Killer's Daughter, Carrie details the impact the discovery has had on her life how she's managed to overcome these shocking challenges, and why she continues to advocate today for other victims. She joins me now to share her story. My dad is Dennis Rader, otherwise known um, as the BTK um, killer, which stands for Bind, Torture, Kill. So I grew up in Wichita, Kansas. Um, I grew up with an older brother um, in a really normal, like what felt like a normal family. 
um, Midwest, you know, mid- middle class, like three bedroom ranch, large yard, you know, just normal life. Grandparents lived down the street. My dad's parents lived like three miles away. So we did a ton of stuff with family. Um, we were always doing things with family for holidays and campouts and cookouts. Um, my dad was basically like my best friend. So I went fishing and camping with him a lot. Um, we did a lot of family vacations, especially like all over the West. We went to the Grand Canyon, Disneyland. I mean, you name it, we probably went and did it. So, um, I mean, you can separate who my dad is now. I know people have a hard time with that. Like they don't really believe me when I'm like, tell them how good life was. But I mean, it was just pretty much idyllic. In this idyllic childhood that you had, looking back on that reflection, were there any signs, any indicators whatsoever that your father, not necessarily was BTK, but had those predisposition, had those inclinations? Did you see a dark side to him? Did you see interactions between him and maybe your family members or or members of the public that looking back raised red flags at the time? Or was it truly a tale of two people within him? Well, in hindsight, it's you can definitely look back and point to those yellow flags and red flags in my father when I was growing up. Um, I can match the timeline of like my dad's murders, his last three when I was alive, when I was a little kids, when I was like six and seven and 12. Um, what were those like, if you can describe? Sure. So before, like going back now, like you still, you still have to sort of separate. So I try to keep like my dad still as my dad. And then Mm -hmm. those things I know now about my dad's other life. But even if, even if you just separate out the worst things my father did, he still could be pretty hard on us. Like he could be controlling so, I mean, I grew up in what I, I would say was a verbally and emotionally abusive home. So I sit there and I just told you how idyllic it was, but that's because I think I didn't really even know the difference between like how I should have been treated by my father at times or how my mother should have been treated, how my brother should have been treated, um, you know, how, what a normal like father would be or a normal like relationship would be for in a marriage. So even if you separate out the murders, like, you know, he, he, he just had these controlling moments with like wanting your shoes in a certain place or wanting to sit at a certain chair at a table at the kitchen table. So if he was home, that was dad's chair. You couldn't sit there. You know, um, you let him kind of go first with things. You let him sort of set the tone. Um, when he got kind of loud and controlling, my mom would just send him outside so I would spend a lot of time with him outside because he would relax and be more like my dad. So after 2005, when we found out who he was, when he was arrested in February, 2005, I started matching up the timeline. So I went back. I was, I wasn't alive for seven of them. They were in the seventies. My mom was pregnant with me with the seventh one in 77. So even that matching up that timeline, it took me a while to just absorb that. So when you match up the timeline, then in 85, um, my dad murdered our neighbor lady down the street, Mrs. Hedge, Maureen Hedge. She was in her early fifties. She was a widow. So when I was six, I knew she had gone missing somehow at six. I knew Maureen Hedge had gone missing 
and I knew they had found her body like a week later or yeah, about a week later strangled out in the country side. But I didn't know, of course, that it was my father, but even at six, like a six-year-old shouldn't know these things. Right. But somehow I did. So either I knew it from the TV being on, cause you know, back then in the eighties, the news would have just been on at night or my parents were talking about it. Cause I know my parents talked about it and, and my dad literally told my mom, well, I think it was her, her boyfriend, the man that had taken her on a date. You remember being hearing this conversation between your parents where your father yeah. said, I, okay. yeah. And I remember like a police officer coming around interviewing my mom, canvassing the neighborhood I was out playing on a pogo stick. I remember that clearly. And I remember him just asking my mom general questions, you know, at the time. I don't, I don't even know they interviewed my father because he would have been at work that day when they came around canvassing. Do you remember if your mother and the neighbor woman, Maureen Hedge, if they were friends or friendly or if your, your parents hung out with them at all? Or was there a relationship with that neighbor or was she just a neighbor at that point? Uh, an acquaintance, we would walk by. So she lived between me and my mom's parents. So she lived two houses down from my mom's parents around the corner and seven from us. So we would walk by and say hi if she was out like raking in her yard or gardening. Uh, and so my father would have spoken to her. It was more just a passing, hello, how are you? You know, we were we weren't really, we were friendly in a neighborhood way, but not like friends. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it was this massive thing in my life when I was six, when she went missing. And when I was six, I knew my father was gone. He, he had been out camping for, on a Cub Scout camp out with my older brother as a leader. So I, I knew that because I, there had been a thunderstorm the night she went missing. I, I slept with my mom because I was scared with the storm. I wouldn't have ever been in my mom's bed if my dad had been home. Mm-hmm. So like, so I, I know this stuff, right? And then in 2005, February, 2000, February 25th, 2005, the FBI agent knocks on my door and he's notifying me that my dad is BTK. Not that he thinks, not that the FBI thinks he is, or they're questioning him. Literally, your dad is BTK. So I'm sitting here trying to alibi my dad. I'm asking about dates. So he mentions the September of 86 one. And then that's when it hit me. Okay, Maureen Hedge was murdered in 85. She was our neighbor. I don't think it was ever solved. I'm literally telling the FBI agent on the day of my father's arrest about Mrs. Hedge. And my father was not arrested for Mrs. Hedge. He was arrested on the 7 in the 1970s that they had DNA on and the 86 one they had DNA on. So he was not arrested that day on Hedge or Davis, the last one in 91. So I'm literally going from like having a conversation with the FBI agent, defending my dad, alibying him, defending the man that I told you about that was idyllic. And, and I literally just like, it was like my guts just twisted in half when I realized Mrs. Hedges murder, you know, had happened so closely, had not been solved. And I said, her phone line was cut. I believe BTK cuts phone lines. And literally the FBI agent stopped me and he called back in to Wichita to like the agents back then. And later that day, my father confessed to all 10, including Hedge. But I I literally like turned my father in on Mrs. Hedge within like 30 minutes of talking to that agent that day. So when you're asking like, 
<laughs> about putting it all together, putting those two sides of my father together. You know, I, in hindsight now, I can remember my dad being gone. I can remember like his hit kit. Um, if I go read about the case in detail, I, I can put together his details of like how he, he had set up an, uh, and his MO and had set up his, this like fake alibi and things. And I remember his hit kit being this bowling bag that he used for that one. So the thing is with hindsight, like I can sit here and tell you, okay, he, he fits this, but it's not like investigators back then would have even had that information to put out there. Right. And you, you talk about this quote hit kit, um, which is sort of a colloquial term that usually is a bag. It's referred to in different phrases, but it essentially, it's what murderers carry on them or in their car or have, and it includes um, their weapons. It includes uh, whatever it is, certain attire, whatever it is that they use. um, And it is sort of created through stalking at times. And, um, you know, BTK is your, your father's M.O., um, most of them were strangled or suffocated, suffocated via plastic bag, via rope, plastic bag, rope, stabbed, shot, survived. That was Kevin Bright, the one that survived. Um, and then back in with strangled via rope, belt, hands. Your neighbor, Maureen Hedge, she was strangled via hands. And then the the following two, via a nylon stocking, that was Vicky Wigirl, and then Dolores Davis, the last one you mentioned, um, also via pantyhose. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about his hit kit, what was in that bowling bag that you knew of or was aware of? I never would have looked in my dad's stuff. I just remember I have a vague memory of seeing a maroon and white old bowling bag, which was weird because my dad didn't bowl. We maybe bowled like twice, but my dad kept so many weird, odd things. I mean, they wouldn't have seemed odd, right? Because we can sit here in hindsight and we can say everything is weird or everything is odd. But you got you got you right. got you got to remember you're talking to somebody that was six in 1985 that you know loved her dad, mm-hmm. so didn't think her dad would hurt a flea. So I literally just remember vaguely seeing a maroon and white bag, bowling bag over by the door, and the reason he had he he put those things you were talking about. We, we can assume what was in there. You would have to ask him or go find like his memories of that, of what was in that specific bag. Um, the reason he did that is because he went out camping that weekend on a Cub Scout camp out that he faked that he was in his tent. He left. He parked at a bowling alley. He went in. He chugged some beer real quick to make it smell on his breath like he had been drinking. He pretended he was drunk. He got a taxi cab out to our neighborhood. Um, and then he proceeded to murder Mrs. Hedge. He removed her body from her house. He actually took her to our church, um, to Polaroids of her and like dressed her up in like bondage and plastic bags and things and took Polaroids. Then he, he dumped her out in the country a couple miles from our church. So that's another thing because in hindsight, you can put all these little details together. Like they found pie, they found pie needles that were out of place next to Mrs. Hedge's body. Well, there aren't a lot of pines in Kansas, but there were pines planted at our church, very tall pines that I would climb when I was a kid. So again, it's those little things now in hindsight I can pull out. Like where those that's where the pine needles came from. So he he then took Mrs. Hedge's car, dropped it off back at the bowling alley, 
and then picked up his car and went back out camping. So he literally would commit these horrific, horrendous crimes. And then he would go right back out to Boy Scouts and then come right home. I mean, literally in 86, he, he killed a mom in front of her young son on what he calls a long lunch hour, which is his quote, and then came home and had dinner with us. We'll be right back with more of this story. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. You mentioned earlier the yellow and red flags, and you mentioned his exhibitions of a controlling type behavior, his chair, um, his seat, etc., Again, putting the hindsight application, the second layer, after he committed these unspeakable murders, did you notice in him a calmness? Did you notice in him a satisfaction, a, a, a slower to temper? Did you notice an excitement? Was there any change in behavior that you could see as palpable after he had engaged in these murders? Yeah. So in the 91 one, Dolores Davis in January of 91, I was 12 by then. So I, of course, you know, I'm twice as old now, so I know my dad better. And he had, he had been laid off from ADT in 88. And then he was working with the Census Bureau off and on. Those were hard years for us because his income had been cut and it was very hard on my dad when he didn't have a job. So he, he was full out of work, um, most of 1990. So he was very depressed. And then my mom got sick with pneumonia. So she was in the hospital for like 12 days with pneumonia at the end of 1990. He, he was having a hard time managing like a seventh grader and a 10th grader. And he was trying to be Mr. Mom. And, you know, I, I, he was tense and very stressed. Like he had a small accident in like off of our driveway with the car, fender bender, just it was, I just, it didn't, it was not a pleasant time to be home with dad and have mom in the hospital. Right. So mom comes home and he goes camping. Um, again, this time with boy scouts, like the trappers rendezvous. So it's a winter camp out. So we assume he's out camping for the weekend. Well, Mrs. Davis goes missing and she lived, um, basically at an intersection, a couple miles down from us and a mile from the church. So, in, in this case, he literally used our family Oldsmobile to move her body, like the car that I then will drive back and forth to high school, you know, a few years later. So when you're talking about seeing a change in him, he was all tense and depressed and worried and just not pleasant to be around. And then as soon as Mrs. Davis was murdered, he was he was more relaxed and more himself mm-hmm. because it he he in his words he says it's like a pot that boils slowly and it has to be released and so he normally would just stalk and troll and then have fantasies have what he called like bondage motel parties and dress up and you know wear victims clothing and things like that and did his own polaroids but he said occasionally it would spill over and he, he basically says he had to murder. So he puts it back on the victims. And so it's really hard in hindsight to sit here and say, okay, things got better in my family when that happened in another family. 
Um, from what we understand of BTKs, of your father's youth, um, he exhibited a lot of violent tendencies toward animals, which is a standard precursor, pre-indicator for um, people who later murder humans and the like. Did you ever see him interact with animals in a violent way? Did you have a family pet? Um, when you, you All those family times that you had in the gatherings and holidays, did he interact with relatives' animals? So we, we had um, two dogs growing up. So we had Patches, which was a spring, I mean, a Britney Spaniel. So Patches was a, a Britney Spaniel. And then we had Dudley later on a Springer Spaniel. So he, when he was around us, he always treated those dogs very loving, like took him on walks. I would take, go on walks with him all the time was one of the things we did. And he, I mean, he took really good care of them, but from 91 until he was arrested, he was a compliance officer and animal control officer for Park City. So there were reports, especially after he was arrested, that some people's dogs had gone missing, like never made it to the animal shelter, you know, or people's cats had gone missing. And then people would talk about him being controlling about, it was his job to make sure things were, the yards were mowed and, you know, like run down cars and stuff weren't left that long, like compliance coats. But he, he was like neurotic about it. So he would, he would take like a ruler and go measure people's grass and give them a ticket. So, I mean, I remember like us getting some bad phone calls and us having to change our phone number because he was ticking people off. Um, he just, he would take whatever he was given and he would do it to the tens. So like he, he made himself a whole sheriff's type uniform, like all brown. He had like a nightstick, a knife. He was like full decked out, had a shotgun in his truck. I mean, he looked just like a county sheriff. So again, in hindsight, mm-hmm. like he actually used that job someone as an outlet. And we do believe he did probably torture and murder some animals then as an outlet versus committing any more human murders. And so in hindsight, then when we were cleaning out our house, like I found a ton of um, leashes and dog collars in the attached shed. So we had this attached shed right on the side of our house. That was like dad's space. There, there would have been no reason to have that many because we only had one dog. And so I think, I think he was collecting trophies. Which we know that he had collected trophies from his human victims. So it's right. not, it's not unreasonable to think he would do no. the same with his animal victims as well. Um, during this time growing up, do you remember him having any friends at all? Or were, were his social interactions limited to family? And of the family that you mentioned, was that your mom's side of the family? Or was that both or your father's? Um, we were close to both sides. We did different things with them. So my dad was pretty close to his brothers. He has three younger brothers. Um, we did a lot of camping and fishing with my dad's side. They're all more like outdoors people. So like, my mom doesn't go outdoors. So like I loved my dad's side of the family because like my grandparents would go to Colorado for a week and we would go RVing, just the kids with them. Um, and we had these big like fall family campouts with like multi-generations. Sometimes my mom would come out for like <laughs> a day, but like she she did not like the outdoors. So 
that's my dad's side. So he was real, real close to his brothers and they, they were extremely torn up when everything happened and just not, none of us have been the same. Like none of us have been the same. So my dad's father was already passed away and his mom wasn't fully in capacity by then. So she didn't survive more than two years after the arrest on my mom's side. Then, um, we just did a lot of birthday parties and a lot of holidays together. So he wasn't as close probably to my uncles on that side. Mm-hmm. Um, but my dad was just like the state, like, okay, if you remove BTK and again, you're talking about my dad, he was just a stand up guy that would like do anything for anybody in the family. And then he had some friends through church, but again, they were more acquaintances, like people he would interact with on that day, or if say there was like a party or something, but he, like my dad didn't really have friends he went out and did things with. He always just, my mom was probably my dad's best friend, but I know I've heard stories like before I was born. And when I was young, my dad used to like buddy around with guys from work at ADT. So though they would have been friends, you know, when like before kids came along and everything else. Can you, can you, if you're willing, can you share and describe the dynamic of your parents' relationship. You say that, you know, your, your mom was probably his best friend again in hindsight. Um, and, or if it was different, your view growing up, but did they, did he seem to have an open, honest, as honest as possible, obviously notwithstanding this hiding this side of him, but did they communicate? Was there a hierarchy there? What, what was the actual dynamic like between them? Um, (sighs) Honestly, he seemed like a pretty good husband. I mean, again, a lot of times when I'm talking about this stuff, it's more I'm seeing it as like through a kid's eyes and more surface level of how things look. So like he took her out to dinner a lot because that's what she liked or he would take her to romantic movies because she she wouldn't go see the action or the horror or, you know, anything scary was not my mom. So he did that with like me. Um, But he he would he treated her really, really well. So like he would carry the groceries in, he would take care of all the outdoor work. He would fix the car, took her on vacations. Like, like again, what you're seeing is like almost a perfect perception on the outside. Like you're seeing layers, right? So he talks about cubing, like he has these layers. That's a term he came up with, with Dr. Ramsland where he's cubing and he's flipping the cube and showing you what side so it's almost like he had a really good husband side, mm. you know, but then he could be verbally and emotionally abusive and controlling. And so I learned at an early age to sort of mimic my mom and learn how to handle my dad. So like I said, she would say, Dennis, go outside, go do the, like, she's like, I'll clean up dinner. You go outside. You know, so she had this way of handling him. And so I learned, I learned that like if he was getting uptight or something when we were out, like, okay, dad, you go do this and I'm going to, I'm going to handle this. So there was sort of like this management, you know, and my, my mom and I say after the arrest, it was like, we had to walk on eggshells. So literally she said it was like walking on eggshells for 30 years. So when you're, when you're looking at back at these personalities of, uh, a narcissist and a psychopath have a tendency to gaslight and they have a tendency to love Bob. And so she really hadn't dated anybody else. She knew all of his family before she knew him. He came back from the military. 
He had served during the Vietnam era. He literally came back in his uniform. They started dating. It was basically love at first sight, she said, and they were married nine months later. So you you have to wonder, like, how much was that legit real? Because I all argue that they really were in love and that he loved us. But then you'll get other experts to, that'll come on and say, psychopaths can't love. And so I'm always arguing with them about that. Yeah. I, that was my, my question when you discussed how, how he's discussed cubism was essentially whether that's a part that he is playing or a part of himself that he is showing, you know, and whether it's sort of assuming a role or whether it's authentically a part of his personality. And um, perhaps we'll never know the answer to your point. You have, you have your perspective that's so valuable because you know him likely best out of anyone. And then we have these competing theories, perhaps by experts that say, well, that's impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, so going back to the shock that you mentioned that your family felt, his two younger brothers, your mom, you, this is your story to share. But notwithstanding that, can you dig a little deeper and, and describe for us what that shock was like for all of you? And, and if his younger brother said, you know, I did notice this growing up, if, did they talk about the flags? Um, how was your processing like and your brother's processing and your mother's? Um, so early on the, on, so on the day of my father's arrest, the FBI said we couldn't talk to anybody for a while. So it took several hours before I was able to get a hold of my mom and my brother. They each, I was in Michigan and my brother was in Connecticut. My mom was in Wichita and they, they, the FBI pulled us notified each of us and then questioned us because they needed to clear us from involvement before we could talk to each other. So my mom was in shock and I was in shock. So my uncle had to step in um, on my mom's side, kind of that my uncle stepped in on my mom's side really quickly and my mom's parents um, to kind of just take care of my mom. And she had to move around a lot because media was hounding everybody, you know, in Kansas. So they were hounding me in Michigan. So um, we flew me to Kansas then. Um, so I literally was shaking from shock for like five days. When we flew me to Kansas, we flew me into the Kansas city airport so that the media wouldn't see me in Wichita. And then I stayed, we stayed with my uncle for a week. My, my mom moved around for several weeks, months, really with family. She never, she never slept in her home again. The one, her home that I've been there for 33 years. She never slept in it again after my dad's rest. So early on, you're just kind of processing the shock. My mom always said it was like my dad had died. Like, like that's not one of the ways my mom's dealt with it is that she came home for lunch and my dad wasn't there and it was like he had died. But then I'm always like, well, how, how do you grieve a person that's not dead? And how do you grieve a person that's infamous? Because the whole world is telling you how God awful your father is. And he did God awful things, but he wasn't most of the time God awful to you. So how, how do you even have the right to grieve this person? And, and your international news. So everything you do is public, you know? And so we were really just more dealing with the shock of, of what happened and trying to process it and understand it. But Within a few days of being at my uncle's, my mom was on the phone with our family pastor who was at the jail with my dad. And my dad said, tell Paula, you know, I have a sexual problem. Like my dad had already confessed to the police. He literally was confessing to the pastor and confessing to us within days of his arrest saying, I have problems. 
you know, and I, like I am the person that did this. My, I really, I remember sitting by my mom on my aunt and uncle's bed, and my mom's got like this yellow notepad, and she's writing notes, and she's using her pen, and she's pointing at it while she's on the phone, like writing out like sexual dysfunction, and then showing me, you know, and so it just it take it took a lot of time for all of us to deal with these things. Like we all sort of have had to deal with it individually. But when you're talking about a Midwest traditional family, like we don't talk about bad stuff, right? Like, you know, like when you're all together with a funeral, even like you're just talking and eating and you're not talking about your feelings or emotions. Like I never grew up talking about emotions. My dad had this whole, like, you don't talk about sex, politics, or religion rule. Well, I mean, it was a pretty traditional, conservative, quiet families. And what trauma does is it gets in there and it shatters. So it shattered my immediate family and it took some time. But I mean, we're, we're not a family we lost, we lost my dad and then it just imploded us and it, it imploded my father's family too. Part of it is because the glue was already dying from old age. We had already lost the glue of my grandpa and then we lost my grandma. And so there weren't any more family campouts, you know, from, for, for me. Now they've all continued that on, but part of the reality of living far away and everything else, I'm just, it's not, it's not what it was because my father literally imploded everybody. And then most everybody in my family do not talk about it. It's been 18 years and they don't talk about it. I'm the only person that talks about it. And I didn't start talking about it till almost 10 years after my father was arrested. And then I had to manage all of that, you know, of all of a sudden I'm okay, mom, we're going to be in the media. I'm going to be on your front page in the morning. I'm going to be on the front page of you know, that newspaper rolled up at my grandparents' driveway because I'm done being quiet. So I'm literally still the only one that talks about it. And you are an advocate for abuse and trauma. Um, And how has your messaging and your advocacy helped your own processing and your own grief management? Um, So when I finally started talking about everything my family had been through and my dad, what my dad did, to us and how I had worked through everything in trauma. I have PTSD and worked on forgiveness and stuff with my faith. Um, people started coming to me and, and saying, Hey, something you're saying is helping us. You know, either they were a war veteran with PTSD or trauma victim survivor, you know, had grown up with abuse had, had survived abuse as an adult or had violent crime happen to them, or they had family members that were criminals. So all these people started coming and they're still coming. And I didn't, I didn't expect that. It's like, it's like I was balled up and dying inside holding everything I'm talking to you about in for almost 10 years, not telling hardly anybody. And then finally I was given the outlet to talk about it. And then all these people showed up and said, Hey, you're helping. Like you're helping us and talking was helping me. And I, and it was like this brilliant moment of like, Oh, okay. Now I have something I can do with this. Like all this horrible, horrible crap happened. 
that I didn't want to survive and I didn't want to live. And I had, I had to keep making the decision. And I still do 18 years later. Okay. I can't go back and change time. I can't go back and save those 10 lives. I can't stop my dad. What can I do now? And I had to make it. I still have to make that decision every day. What do I do now? What do I do with this? And it was like a gift to me when all these people showed up that needed help. And so now like beyond talking about what I've been through to try to get ed- people more educated about people like my father, what to look for, you know, to expand criminology textbooks about psychopathy and victimology and criminology, which is what I'm doing. I, I'm like day to day working on like missing people's cases or advocating for domestic violence victims or working with the media quietly. Like, okay, over here, this needs some eyes. This needs a story, you know, and, and this is the person that you can talk to. And so I'm like literally over here learning to connect and advocate. And I'm like a baby. I don't even know what I'm doing most of the time with it still. So, but it's like what I'll be doing the rest of my life now is this is advocacy. So that is like a massive gift to me to have been brought up by a serial killer, raised really tough and strong. And now I can go use that strength and knowledge to go help other people. So that's really what it's about now. And it's my understanding that you're strong in your faith and that's played a large part as well in your processing. And as you were just saying that, I was thinking about the scripture, you know, all things work for the good of those who love the Lord. Mm -hmm. And therefore your, your grief and trauma, as you just articulated, unbeknownst to you, you were helping others and you were serving as a magnet for them. And you, you think you don't know what you're saying or doing, as you just said, but whatever you are feeling and however you are articulating it as you are processing it is helping others. You are changing and likely saving lives. Yeah. What does that I, mean to you? It, it means a lot because it's really hard <laughs> like to live with this freaking PTSD and live this life under the spotlight. You know, like any little thing I tweet or something can become news. It's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's crazy. It's crazy nuts over here. So, but like the thing is, it's my dad that took me to church, right? My parents, all my family were Lutheran. We sat in this pew with both sets of my grandparents. Like every Sunday you had to go to church. Like my dad, it was my dad and my mom. Okay. You're going to get dressed up. You're going to take a shower the night before. Like I hated that part. I hated dressing up. I'm a total tomboy. You know, he, my dad is like shining in some shoes military to go to church. And then he served. So he was like in communion. He was a past, like an assistant pastor. I literally was acolyting next to my father. Why is assistant pastoring in the same church that he brought Mrs. Hedges body to? I mean, that is the, that's the reality of this insane life over here. But I, so I was brought up with this faith and then I walked from it and then found God really, truly personally, personal relationship down in the Grand Canyon in 97, which was a crazy trip with my father. You know, it was just like literally rock bottom. Um, and after that, things got better for me. You know, this was years before he was arrested. So I, I had built up like an evangelical faith then in college with Campus Crusade for Christ met my um husband then through that 
And so that really was one of the foundations that saved me when my father was arrested. Because I didn't think I was going to make it through that first hour or that first night. I remember praying through like the Lord, like Psalm 23, you know, and I, I'm never good at scripture memorization. So there's just little bits would come to me, you know, like the Lord is my line, my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? And I've, I've said that over and out loud a million times since then. You know, so when my faith s- is what, without my faith, I, I wouldn't be here. And when you said that was a crazy trip with your dad in the Grand Canyon, what do you mean by that? Oh, gosh. So I write, I write a whole section in my, in my book about it because I needed to, because when I was starting to learn to write, I needed to find my dad again and not BTK. So that's where I, I focused to begin with. But so in May of 97, we had been out to the canyon a few times. We had stayed on the rim a few month, years before that. And my dad had researched. He said he had everything under control, like just the narcissism was in there. But of course, I didn't realize. I just trusted him. I'm like an 18-year-old that's just trusting my dad that we're going to go have this grand adventure. You know, and then we ended up in the Grand Canyon. Oh, he took some, he didn't even want to go on the popular trails. That was my dad. He always wanted to camp away from people, do his own thing, you know, get us in trouble and and danger. So within hours, we were dehydrated. We didn't have enough water. Um, We were on this really rocky, unmaintained trail. We had to take our bags off. My cousin that was my age was with me. Um, My brother was supposed to be with us, but he was sick. So he stayed up on the ledge. But then my dad told him he could come down later on his own. So he got into all of this trouble later on his own. My brother, he even got lost. Um, it was just this whole insane thing my dad had taken us on where really, you know, we all could have died because the first night we didn't even make it to water. You have to make it to water within your days because there, you can't carry enough with you in like 90 degree heat. So we were camping in the rocks the first night. We only had like a cup of water. And the next day, then I remember we were camping. We had to stay under a rock for shade. So we didn't even make it to like our campsites the first two nights. So literally, I mean, the first day I was, I was, I think I was probably almost delirious from heat, but I also was, was, was suicidal at that time. And of course I hadn't told my parents because I had, I had lost my cousin um, in an accident months before and my dad's dad to cancer. So I was, I literally was dealing with suicide ideation my freshman year in college. But of course I didn't tell my strict Midwest parents because you don't tell them things. So I almost threw myself over the ledge that first day in the Canyon. And literally it was like something came up against me and saved me, you know? And that's when I actually started talking to God again and praying. And that's where I found him that week. But I literally was down there wanting to like kill my dad. <laughs> like four or five days in, my dad's my dad's miserable. And he's like, why don't you just leave me here? And so now in hindsight, I'm like, I should have just left him in the canyon. Oh. But like, there's such a metaphor, I think, to that. Of, of like, you see my dad's narcissism and his grand ideas, you know, get away with him. And then you're putting people, putting his children and my cousin in a lot of danger, you know, and then thinking it was just this grand adventure when it was all over. Um, it's just, it's a lot. 
More of the Fox True Crime podcast coming up. What you described before was effectively a psychological death, that you have gone through the psychological death of your father as you knew him because that has ceased to exist as an identity. Now you know and think of him as BTK, as you were saying, and putting the pieces together. So since that, in in managing that grief, in realizing that death, in realizing and processing your father's identity as BTK, have you forgiven him? And have you ever communicated with him since learning of his arrest? Yeah, so early, right early on, we knew he was confessing. The FBI told us that first night, and they had told us they had found, you know, his his serial killer treasures, IDs and jewelry from the victims underneath our floorboards. So those little things you start, you wrestle with, like reality versus what you don't want reality to be, and those things start wedging in and become reality. So within the first week or so, I wrote him a letter, and I was like, look, basically, if you – if you did this, you need, need to plead guilty. You know, like we, we know it, you know it, like do the right thing. So my brother wrote him, my mom wrote him, you know, all family wrote him. People would go visit him early on. And, uh, he did actually plead guilty then in June of 05, instead of putting everybody through a trial. Um, but we weren't sure if he was, and he was sort of holding that and toying with it and playing with it and holding it against us. I wrote him some then for a few years. And then I got pregnant with my oldest, my daughter in 07, and I got very protective and I shut down for several years. So I didn't write my dad for like five years. Then I, I was starting to work through some of what I had been through and sharing, starting to share at church. And I had stood up and shared some of my story with church in 2012. But I said, hey, I, I haven't forgiven him, and I don't know what to do about that as a Christian. And then it was like God was working on me that whole fall. And I actually had just gone to a movie, and I was coming back. And it was like this light hit the car. And I had to pull over. I was sobbing. And it was like, it was just like I had released that, had released some of that anger, and I had forgiven my father. And it wasn't, it wasn't for me. It was definitely a God thing. I, I would have never been able to do it on my own. And so I went home, I told my husband, and then I sat down and I wrote, typed out like a six-page letter. And at the end, I said, Dad, I love you. I forgive you. And if you accept Christ, you'll be in heaven someday, forgiven for everything you've done. Some people get really mad at me about that, but I was dying inside. I was rotting from holding all that anger in and all that stuff. So I, I had to let it go. I was letting go of what my dad had done to me. I wasn't, I wasn't saying dad's forgiven for what he's done to these seven families or the community. I was just letting it go for myself so yes. that I could come back alive. And so my husband said, as soon as I forgave my dad, it was like I was becoming Carrie again and not BTK's daughter. Mm-hmm. And so like the last 11 years now, I've sort of I go back and forth between myself. Like I keep having to fight to find myself. More and more, like I'm coming more alive, you know, but I still have to remember that I'm me and I'm not his daughter in in that, not just in that context. 
Yeah, that makes me think of, you know, the the peace of Christ Jesus that surpasses all understanding mm-hmm. that will guard and protect your heart and that that peace can only be found that that's God's peace to your point. It's it's right. um far beyond clearly the limitations of us as humans and I'm grateful for your articulation and that's exactly what I meant the your the forgiveness you extended for the wrong seated to you. Mm-hmm. Um you're not absolving him mm-hmm. of those murders. Those mm-hmm. that forgiveness comes obviously from God and also from each family individually. This is about your relationship with him and the peace you experienced mm-hmm. upon releasing that anger. Which to your point, after 10 years before even talking about it, um you know, this is an ongoing process for you. Two steps forward, one step back. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What's the thing that helps you the most now in this moment with your family and your children, your, your writing and helping others and that the constellation of everything together. But at this moment, what is your, um, your best resource? Um, I guess I'm learning that I like, you know, when God is firmly in my corner so mm-hmm. he's a major resource, but also I'm trying to learn that I am a resource. So I take, if I remember, I take all these pieces of all the times I've been in trauma therapy. I take bits of conversations. Um, today I read a victim's impact statement from um, a family member attached to the Lori Vallow trial. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I read that I shared it. I saved it. Um. I take all the, all these things. I I, like, I take the light and the outdoors, you know, and I, (laughs) that's what I run on. So like literally today I was up early. I was sharing a story of um, a domestic violence victim that was murdered in Detroit this weekend where I had lived for several years. And then I was like, okay, I'm triggered. Mm -hmm. So I have that like self-awareness and self-care knowledge to go, okay, I'm triggered what do I do next? So I went outside on my lanai and I anchored. So literally for me, that's okay. Find three things you can see. So light, trees, cat. Okay. Two things you can hear, birds and bugs. And one thing you can feel the ground and then, okay, I'm untriggered. Okay. Come back in and work. Mm -hmm. So literally for me, it's just being centered Remembering all of my tools, everything I've got, everybody that's in my corner, and then using that to go do what I need to go do. And if I don't remember, then I have to like wave the flags and get help. Yeah. And just by articulating that process, I'm sure you're helping so many others who don't know where to start, who don't know what to do in those moments of being triggered. Um, that's so helpful. That's that's really an incredibly powerful tool that you're spreading and sharing. Um, and Carrie, before we close, did your father respond to you with those letters that you wrote him? Did you get responses from him? Oh yeah. So after I forgave my father in December, 2012, I got a Christmas card and like a letter saying that he, I basically restored his Christmas spirit with my words. And then we did better for some years back and forth talking and being more open. And I was sharing some about the kids in my life. You know, we never, dad and I never directly talked about his crimes or the, his acronym. We just 
it's kind of stuck to, okay, this is my life in Michigan. And he stuck to, this is what I'm eating in prison kind of stuff. So we were good for a while. And then what happened was when I started speaking up, he didn't really care for me having the spotlight and the attention. And so he pushed himself back into the media and he still does to this day of, of like I was speaking up in January, do the um, Idaho four arrest with Koberger. Mm-hmm. And so my dad showed up right away back in the media. Um, so I, I had to cut my dad off. So I cut my dad off legally two years ago um, with this uh, do not contact order that the prison helped me get. Um, cause he was just doing a lot of really awful things. He was cyber stalking me through third parties and trying to find out where I lived and sending like signing crime scene photos, profiting off of like murder mobilia, um, just really bad things. My father should not have been doing. And so, um, he finally just crossed too many lines with me and I had gotten strong enough. Really. That was really it after like 40 some years, I was strong enough to cut him out of my life. So we, we don't have any relationship. So then people bark at me and argue, well, you forgave me, but you're not in relationship. And I said, look, it's sometimes it's not safe to be in relationship with somebody. You can forgive somebody and have them keep them over there because it's not safe to be in relationship with this person. You know, that's not forgiveness. Isn't about going back in relationship. It's just letting things go and moving on with your life and living. And then don't let the bad people in your life. That's, that's all you're saying. You're not saying, Hey, come back in my life. No, we have boundaries. We have, we have boundaries for a reason. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Forgiveness does not, is not mutually exclusive with boundaries, nor is it mutually exclusive with your health and safety, obviously. And forgiveness is for you. Your forgiveness is for you. And so is your self-preservation. And so is your setting boundaries to make sure you remain safe in all facets of that Mm -hmm. word. Um, You mentioned the Idaho murders and, and there was a, a, a resurface of BTK and and of your words in the media at that time and and certain um, certain hypotheticals certain um, things that were raised and questions that were raised at the time. If you want to share on that, I'm I'm all ears. If you'd like to share about your thoughts or the parallels drawn or the suppositions that were drawn at the time that haven't proved founded. Yeah. So right when. Um... Koberger was arrested. It came out that he studied under Dr. Ramslin, who is a criminology professor at DeSales University in Pennsylvania. So Koberger did his last two years of his undergrad and then his two-year master's under Ramslin. Now, we're still debating, was that online or was it in person or was it both? And then with the pandemic, nobody's really been able to fully answer that. But anyway, he studied under Ramslin. And Ramslin recommended him, as far as I know, for the doctorate program in Washington. So as soon as I heard Ramslin's name, my PTSD just went flared up on December 30th when Brian was arrested because of my father. Um, It was just too close to home because Dr. Ramslin had worked really closely with my dad for years. They wrote a whole book on my dad. They co-wrote a book. She plays chess with my dad via letter. She phone calls him, visits him in prison. Um, 
they have they have a very tight relationship. And my dad used Ramsland and me and would play us against each other for years, you know. So there there's a lot of history there with Dr. Ramsland for me. And then to find out that here's this like so so-called expert on psychopaths who's very close to my father, who's a psychopath, who's now taught what we assume if Koberger is guilty is psychopathic behavior. She missed that. And so I started speaking up because I was concerned, well, what if Koberger had contacted my father? Mm-hmm. As far as we know, we don't have any evidence of that. My dad came out and said no on Koberger. You know, are they writing each other now? Who knows? Like. Is Ramsland writing Koberger? Is Ramsland going to do a Koberger book? Is she going to be an expert? Is she going to be called in as a witness? Nobody knows these things right now. What message, Carrie, do you have? Um, what final message would you like to share with listeners um, for anyone? Um, I think it's just really important to know, like, you might not think you can survive whatever you're going through and whatever you're going through it is it, hopefully not what I've been through, but some people have been through way worse than me or are going through way worse than anything I've ever been through right now. So whatever you think it is that you can survive, you can, you just, you've got to get help. So I should have got into trauma therapy early right away. I didn't. So get help, ask for help, whatever help that is that you need. Just, tell somebody and then one foot in front of the other, even if it's just one minute in front of the next, literally just do make a decision, make a choice and then go do that. Even if it's okay today, I'm going to sweep my floor. If that's all you're going to get done, at least you've done something. So you just, you have to make these decisions. So 10 years out from his arrest, I literally was still having to make that decision. Okay. This really sucks what happened to me. It's God awful. It shouldn't have happened. Completely altered my life. Completely altered everything I know about the world. Okay, what am I going to do with it? And then I made that decision. So I kept getting help. I started writing. I started speaking. And now I'm helping other people. So still, I'm still having to decide, what am I going to do with this? It sucks. I don't... I never wanted any of this. I never asked for any of it. But I... I had, you have to do something with it. So just make a decision and choose to choose to stay alive. Basically. My, my takeaway after talking with you, Carrie, is just how brave you are, how strong you are and that you perfectly, perfectly exemplify um, everything that you just said, this, this inspiration to others that, horrible things can happen to people that they have no control over and that trauma is so real and so shattering. And I'm so grateful to you for seeing how you took what is an, um, difficult to even articulate tragedy that you've experienced and are continuing to experience and how much you are sharing with such vulnerability and such honesty with others, how they can get that same help. And, and, um, I'm just so grateful to you. And I just see you as so strong, so strong. Um, and I want to make sure that everyone, I would love for them to read breaking free, overcoming the trauma of my serial killer father. 
and A Serial Killer's Daughter, My Story of Faith, Love, and Overcoming, which are the two books that you've written, um, which provide much more detail and much more insight into your processing and into your life and into the help that you can be for others who might be experiencing um, the same thing. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And I like getting to talk faith because I don't get to do that much. To stay up to date on the latest true crime headlines, subscribe to the Fox True Crime Minute with Laura Ingle wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.